ทัสสะบกวาโทอะระหะโทสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสนะโมทัสสะบกวาโทอะระหะโทสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสนะโมทัสสะบกวาโทอะระหะโทสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะอาปารุธาเดชังอามาทัสทาวราเยสุรวันทาบมุนจันทุสทังเ
memory then is uh, a function that we have uh, that uh, is part of our human ability. We have we have language, uh, perception, uh, and memory uh, that we can uh, we can retain things in our minds, uh, memories of the past, and usually the memories are around the extremities of experience, the great times or the or the horrible times. Memories uh, tend to go be, be of the extremity, and the ordinary flow uh, of life is uh, usually not remembered. There's nothing in it to remember. Or memory uh, always has this this uh, sense of, of a peak moment or the uh, the nadir of of emotional uh, uh, trauma, but but in terms of or in terms of most of our life is not is neither uh, a peak experience nor uh, at the bottom of the in the pits either it's it's just like this it's breathing it's sitting it's it's uh, um, feeling this way uh, feeling that way which is uh, may not have any extreme quality to it so we don't remember it When we, because we do have memory, we have language, and therefore we, we have the ability to, to uh, hold things in the mind, to retain things for long periods of time. Like we can re remember things from childhood, uh, things that happened to us from way back in, in the uh, early years of our life. And when we remember them, they're just as powerful sometimes as, as they were at, at the time. One can still feel angry about being treated unfairly when you were five years old, uh, even when you're 50 years old. You can still feel uh, the same kind of resentment. So that this memory it doesn't really age. As we get older, uh, the body gets ages, uh, but the uh, but the mind doesn't age. The, it gets conditioned. We get stuck maybe in memories. Like you, you see old people who uh, who get stuck in just reiterating their the stories of their youth, and they forget everything else. Every time you go see them, they're telling you about when they did this and when they did that, uh, and they because. As you get older, then you, your past is very important to you. Uh, when you're young, usually it's the future that's important. You know, the future is the, the great promise of experience, success, and all that. But when you get old, the future, what is that? What, what is the future for an old person? Old age, sickness, death. And death is waiting. But when you're young, you. You, you're looking forward to uh, romance, adventure, excitement, success, uh, experience, uh, all the pleasures uh, that one can imagine, uh, that one can have, lie there in the uh, potential possibilities for future experience. 
because we can remember, then of course we, we create a lot of suffering around memory. We ca because we can feel, still feel angry about uh, abuse we, we received when we were five years old, uh, then we can still carry this memory into 80, 90 years and, uh, and never resolve it. So we see a lot of people have never resolved their, their karma uh, with the past. They merely repress it and then, then it tends to uh, come out in moments where the controlling mechanisms aren't working anymore. So you see in, in old age or people dying, uh, sometimes they'll remember all these things. So they go through various rages and, and resentments uh, that ha the things happen, that happened to them uh, 60, 70 years ago uh, and many more. So the, uh, these memories never uh, do uh, get into consciousness but then uh, maybe it's too late. Maybe we've never resolved those memories. And so on our deathbed, we die still feeling uh, uh, some desires, longings or resentment about uh, the past or our life that has passed by. With meditation, meditation is... Uh, is, is, is has many purposes. One is, one is to kind of um, calm the mind, learn how to control and concentrate on skillful objects, so that increasingly refined objects of meditation. Uh, one one re one gets uh, a certain tranquility uh, through concentrating the mind on refined objects. Just uh, like before the meal with that brief metta meditation uh, you can see if you if you fill your mind with good thoughts then the result is you feel good uh, whatever you you allow into your consciousness you become that so when you when you develop metta meditation uh, then it's uh, on, on one level it's it's learning to dwell on what is good and positive and and uh, kind and not dwelling on what is uh, painful or negative being patient for one thing learning to be patient learning to not uh, uh, get caught into resentment and anger that you you might have about your life and the world that you live in but to dwell on the positive that's why, you know, in metta practice, as, as I've said before, uh, sometimes it's easier to spread metta to, to a billion Chinese in China than it is to the monk sitting next to you. <laughs> the monk sitting next to you, you know, and maybe he's, he's doing something really irritating. Five, um, a, million, a billion Chinese are so far away and you don't know any of them so you can you can feel kindly towards one billion people who you don't know who are not bothering you in the present but uh, sometimes uh, we can really feel uh, uh, resentment anger towards someone 
that's close to you in the present. So that the the ability to spread metta, they take this. We use we use this memory. We use sanya kanda and sankara kanda uh, in a skillful way for developing uh, this attitude of loving kindness, and then radiate the sense of radiation of of spreading it out. Metta has no discrimination to it. It's not, even though you say all male, all men, all women, all people in Europe, all people in Asia and so forth, the, the metta has no, you aren't spreading more metta to one and, and less to another. It has a sense of, of total uh, totality and equality. There's no, there's no preference. Uh, we also spread metta to the evil forces and the, as well as the, the good forces, equally, you know, there's no, you know, 90% to the angels, 10% to the devils. It's uh, metta is not a matter of, of, um, of amount or percentage, but of an attitude in which uh, that discrimination, that ability, that thing in us that, that likes and prefers is was not taking uh, precedence in our consciousness at that time. So it's a unifying ability. It's love is a, is a unifying experience. Where hatred is a discriminating one, isn't it? It's divisive. Hatred always, the negative side tends to divide. And uh, so that that hatred, anger, that is a divisive force and love is a unitive one. In exploring this in experience, I mean, we meditation, we're, we're actually exploring this, observing, so that we're not just operating from the ideas uh, from the book. Because this you can know directly, it's not something that, that you can't do or can't know. It's a matter of, of developing an attitude of watching and listening rather than of thinking. Uh, because we're, we're educated to think. Most of our modern uh, uh, life is based on education which, which conditions us to think about everything. Where we are, we're obsessed with thinking, with logic, and with reason, figuring things out, with analysis, of comparing, of discerning, uh, and therefore picking and choosing. And though the mind, very much the modern education, modern attitudes, is a a mind that's divided all the time. There's always this: I like this better than that. Uh, this is this is good. This is bad. Right and wrong. And we're very caught up in discrimination, so so that uh, we we want to punish those who do wrong, and we want to reward those who are good. So you see, capital punishment, the the questions and controversy around capital punishment in a, in a modern country like this or in the United States uh, arises because it's uh, it's the desire uh, based on the discrimination of the mind to punish those who've done wrong and to 
try to reward those who do good. That's very much how, say, modern Western society is, is based on that, on reward and punishment. The idea of, of, of getting titles, winning prizes, uh, that, uh, get, becoming famous, uh, and so forth is based on the desire for rewards, for doing things well, for skillfulness, for be doing unusual things, unique uh, creations, and, and everything special and, and, and better than somebody else's. Then modern education very much uh, an attempt, uh, uh, very competitive, where we have to try to outdo somebody else. Get get ahead of somebody else, and so because of that, we 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 have uh, a lot of uh, emotional problems because emotionally, we 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 feel uh, this sense of stress all the time that we we get kind of programmed into this idea that that we're behind that we've got a there's always something more we have to do something we have to prove we have to catch up we're we we missed the boat, we'll miss the bus. Uh, we're old-fashioned. Uh, we we're not as good as somebody else, uh, and this is very much uh, becomes obsessional in some people. You can see it in the in, in the monastic sangha, just uh, people who are now looking closely at their own conditioning, and this is a very common uh, problem with all of us. This stands up having to keep up, of, of getting behind, of not being good enough. And this is based on, on this, uh, on this uh, sanya, sankara, attachment to sanya, sankara, kanda, the, the memories we have, the sense of our personal worth, uh, the, the values, cultural values that we've acquired, and the um, attitudes that that we have in regard to ourselves and relationship to others and to the society. So there is this is the conditioning of the mind, and it takes us into some what we call rebirth. We're always becoming. There's always this sense of becoming. God, we've got to become something. We have this sense that the way we are right now, uh, there's something wrong with it. Uh, we're not, we're either impure, or we're stained, or we're sinners, or we are somehow, uh, have all kinds of defilements, defects, that we have to uh, get rid of in order to become uh, somebody who is uh, better than what we believe we are now. And this also is a conditioning of the mind, this ongoing kind of relentless need to, to become. And it gets also uh, stressful in terms of experience because that's why people do, why there's so much drug addiction, alcoholism, where you just uh, kind of fold up and can't take anymore. And you can kind of um, lessen this, this aggravating a feeling of of, of running around trying to catch up, trying to become something, 
by taking drugs or drinking alcohol, which tend to reduce that, that kind of, of uh, emotional habit, uh, temporarily anyway. This is all due to memory and to conditioning of the mind. So this sense of becoming is, uh, when we do get, whatever we become, the problem still operates. Even if you become the, the thing that you want to become, you're still caught in the momentum of desire to become something. So you start becoming, wanting to become something else. So like, like no matter how much money you might make, uh, even if you could make all the money uh, that you could, that more than anyone else in the world, the habit would still be there to want more than that. And it's just uh, because it's a habit based on, on, on memory, on desire, memory conditioning. Uh, it's, uh, that's why there's no way you can fulfill desire I mean, you can momentarily gratify desires and you get what you want. You feel, a at the, say, a level of gratification for a few moments. And then it starts again. You want something else. So that's just the, the, the nature of desire. You know, it's always looking for a place for rebirth. Desire is that, is that energy in the universe that's looking for a womb or a place be reborn into whether it's you know and the, you can see this in yourself just how much when you're de when you're caught in desire how you're you, you become obsessed with that with the object trying to get uh, get a, a place get what you want so you can become what that uh, become whatever that desire is is aiming at and sometimes you can even see yourself, even though you, you may not particularly want anything in particular, desire, you're just caught in the momentum of desire, so it's looking for anything, anything just to, to get born again, get reborn into something. Because that's all this restless, blind restlessness knows how to do, it's just a, a kind of, uh, if it's not aimed at anything in particular, then it's randomly looking for any possibility for rebirth. Because, uh, say, modern uh, life in our society is, isn't based on wisdom or understanding of truth, but on, based on desire and on ignorance of truth. So even society at its best, we can see, you know, with so much of this, this century that's nearly over, how... Uh, so much emphasis was put into, uh, say, trying to perfect political systems. You know, with the idea of, of such, such uh, political systems of like that are democratic or socialist, communist. The idea that, that what's wrong with the with the world, with the society we're living in, is it? It's not. It needs to have a better political system, a more fair, more just form of government. And and distribution of the wealth, and and even when we have a major success with that, then it goes into something else. As we all know, having lived in this country, where there's never whatever political system happens to be operating, we can always think it could be better than what it is. 
And uh, even if we're satisfied with the present one, uh, th there's part of us that's still restlessly looking for something else again because we're caught in that what's called a samsara, samsara, this, this constant round of rebirth where we just go around and around and around. So even getting all our wishes fulfilled, every, every question answered, we're still left in the same cycle going around with that. So it would be really a, a hopeless situation if there was no way out of this samsara, if we were just, if, if we, it's just a kind of like a, a cosmic joke where you're stuck forever going around and around uh, in circles and reborn again for another lifetime of going around and on and on forever would be a really uh, a depressing view of life. Or the other is to hope that once it's over, it's finished, like oblivion. Once you're dead, you know, you get it over with, you're just dead and that's it. And, and everything's just completely destroyed, wiped out, nothing left, oblivion. Or the other, where you, we, if you've been good, you get rewarded. You go to heaven, where you, every, you get all your wishes fulfilled again. Uh, only you're satisfied this time. Uh, and you, you live forever in a state of, of uh, happiness, which is, you know, uh, a state that, say, in terms of our experience, is very impermanent in the human experience. Happiness is, is uh, you know, very fleeting. So we like it. So we, the, the, the human mind can conceive of a heavenly realm where we're happy forever. But when when you start examining happiness, as we as those moments of happiness that we have as human beings, we we also recognize the unsatisfactoriness of happiness. That even you know if if we could just be happy all the time, that wouldn't be enough. Uh, there's still there's still this something in us is is not being addressed, not being recognized. So, to get out of this cycle of rebirth, the Buddha taught uh, the Four Noble Truths, which uh, goes directly to, the, to the, the very cause, to the very basis of human experience, and that is this uh, sense of suffering, that we, are, that we are in a realm where we're constantly being agitated in some way threatened in some way. I mean, we're, we, we have physical bodies, we have senses, and, the, and once we're born, then there's always this, this, this kind of agitation going on. There's always something impinging, something irritating this form. You know, it's just the way it is. From the time you're born from your mother, then you start your life as a, as a separate conscious entity uh, where you then have to experience this, this continuous, ongoing, relentless irritation and agitation on, the, on your body, on your senses and mind. And, and because of our uh, ability to, to think and to identify and to name and to remember, then we, 
we take all this very personally. We, the attitude is, this is happening to me. I am this body here. I'm this person. And so everything gets translated into terms of this, I'm suffering. And if, you, if you're doing something to irritate me, then, then I blame you. You're causing me to suffer. Uh, or because I, don't, I can't get what I want all the time, I suffer because I can't get what I want. Or, uh, or if I have something I really like, then somebody takes it away from me. And that's suffering. So suffering is the common human bond we all share. Every, you know, the Buddha stated this truth 2,541 years ago so in India. And, uh, and you know, that seems like, you know, so far removed from, from our uh, time, modern day Britain, uh, and yet it's true. The suffering is the same, whether it's ancient India or modern Britain or anywhere else. Whatever human beings, we're all the same. Whatever race, nationality, male or female, it doesn't make any difference. Uh, Queen Elizabeth suffers as much as, as all of us. <laughs> Being Queen of England isn't exactly happiness guaranteed. And so, <laughs> so yeah, the rich and the poor and the, uh, uh, the, whole, the whole range of human beings uh, are caught in this, this experience of suffering through birth. This is a realm where we have to bear with, endure this relentless agitation uh, through, an, uh, through uh, consciousness, through a, through a very vulnerable form too. The human body is a very vulnerable thing. It's very easily damaged. It gets diseases, sick, sickness, pain. Uh, we have, even though we live on a beautiful planet, there's so much that impinges on us that is ugly and painful and and uh, horrible as part of our human experience of life. So then the Buddha relate is taking this problem of suffering. It's interesting reading books on modern movements of psychology the feminist or the, the men's movement and things like this, how uh, the, the emphasis is on being wounded. The human, the, like, like the feminist movement had the sense of being wounded uh, of because of, of being a woman. And then I've been reading a book on the men's movement and men have the same idea that they've been wounded. And <laughs> so this sense of being wounded seems to be a common bond. We, we can blame, you know, blame my wounds on women or on men or on mothers and fathers. But the Buddha pointed to the very wounding itself, the dukkha, as the first noble truth. And that's through actually being born in this form and uh, where we have to experience this, uh, as I say, birth trauma is probably the first wound. Just just the process of, of being born, <laughs> physical birth, must be, I can't remember it, uh, but uh, uh, certainly my mother had a pretty hard time uh, with giving birth to me. <laughs> and, uh, um, and then once you're born, then you, 
then you're open in this like a a baby is a a very vulnerable creature it can't does can't do much to protect itself it's just dependent totally dependent for for quite a few years on children on the others around them to love them feed them take care of them nurture them or abuse them so so this is, and now we hear so many, so much news around uh, like child abuse. And uh, I mean, this is all coming to the surface now. Everybody's interested in, in how, in, in the, the way, uh, that the things that happen that, say, before were never mentioned, never allowed to be made public. Nobody ever talked about them. In my childhood, um, things like, like, uh, that they talk about now and you read in the newspapers were never uh, never even nev never no one ever thought such a thing could happen maybe things didn't happen like that when I was a child maybe that's just modern day problem but I doubt it it seems to <laughs> it seems to be now uh, say in the society a willingness a more of a willingness to look and admit what actually takes place trying to understand rather than just cover up and deny and pretend. So the interest in meditation that we can see is, is happening, especially in the, you know, the, the it's Buddhism uh, being uh, integrated into countries like Sri Lanka and Thailand and Burma, being part of a cultural attitude uh, but here we see in, in Britain, for example, a lot of interest in Buddhism and in meditation. Why? Why particularly do European people, why do, what, what do they see in Buddhism that interests them? We have our own religion, as somebody said. When we moved into Chitters, one lady in Chitters said, we have our own religion. We don't need yours. <laughs> No, we have our, we certainly have our own religions here. We don't need to import new religions um, if it's just a matter of religion. But what we, what what is it that say particularly attracts the the Western educated person, or some of them anyway, towards Buddhism? And for just speaking for myself. Uh, which is all I can ever really do anyway, is, is say that it, it's because of uh, this kind of reflective ability that, that the, the way the Buddha taught. He approached the human condition through the common denominator of suffering, which I could relate to. When I, when I, I became a Buddhist when I was only 21 years old. So, and I was, uh, you know, certainly... Uh, was healthy, uh, and and I had came from a good family. There wasn't anything like tr anything tragic, or anything particularly going wrong in my life. But this, but there was so much suffering. This the self consciousness, the uh, the uh, the anxiety, the worry, the way the mind was conditioned uh, was. Was set, was programmed to create suffering around almost everything. Whether how I looked, did I look good enough? You know, what I wore, who I knew, uh, comparing myself to others, 
uh, feeling uh, rejected by other people or, fe or feeling uh, in a competitive society where you feel you're always thinking of yourself whether you're better or worse than somebody else. This was suffering because you even feeling better than somebody else isn't peaceful feeling. Then uh, not understanding what the problem is. So you're, you're kind of wandering around just uh, trying to, what, what is life about anyway? And then people say, well, just forget it. Just enjoy. Enjoy life. Eat, drink, be merry. Have, a, have, a, have, a fu have fun while you're young. That kind of thing was generally the advice I was getting from people. Which seemed, you know, um, it certainly was a, an attractive uh, thing to be told. But even uh, seeking happiness and, and uh, eating, drinking and making merry was still uh, unsatisfactory as experiences. It wasn't, wasn't the solution or wasn't the answer to the problem. Didn't get me out of that wheel, that grinding momentum of, of self and obsession and suffering. So in the, 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 the Buddha taking this, this, this common denominator of all humanity, suffering, dukkha, and then instead of blaming it on anybody, or point or pointing to happiness as a goal, he pointed to to understanding dukkha. That's quite an interesting. This is modern psychology. <laughs> this is what they're doing now. Psychology, understand, looking at suffering, examining it, rather than just <coughs> trying to blame it on somebody else or or ignore it. So this is this is very you know in terms of the Western world understanding suffering is is quite a quite a radical new idea, even though you think many of you from Asian countries think Buddhism is maybe old-fashioned religion. Uh, <laughs> that uh, and probably you know I've, I've met so many Buddhists from from Sri Lanka and Thailand. Uh, who often think of Buddhism as just the old, you know, for the old grandmothers, you know, the old ladies that go <laughs> to the temple <laughs> with their dana. Uh, that's all it is. And they're surprised, uh, oftentimes very surprised, to see a Westerner uh, uh, actually serious pr seriously practicing it and, and uh, living as a monk or a nun. But this... Uh, this addressing of the of the common human problem of suffering is we can see something that that is is universal it brings us into not into uh, quibbling about the ultimate nature of life or the 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 hereafter but it's addressing the common human experience and so when we look at suffering human suffering we're not we're not blaming it on anybody uh, but we're recognizing that it's something we create in our minds out of ignorance so this this uh, it, we're th this means that we're now beginning to take responsibility for what what we do how we live so this is this is definitely a 
an advancement in human experience where we now are growing up a little bit more instead of just expecting society or somebody else to take care of me uh, and solve my problems I'm now seeing that I must solve the problem and re take the responsibility for my life rather than asking somebody else to do so. So in this way um, we began to say see that suffering is caused out of not understanding things as they really are. Suffering is caused out of, out of ignorance of the truth. And so ignorance of the truth and suffering are the, are the, um, kind of the, are the cause. I mean, ignorance is the cause, suffering is the result. So by reflecting on that, then you, you begin to recognize the way of non-suffering. As you see the cause, you, you, and, and understand the cause, then the ignorance drops away. And then what you see is Dhamma, or the way things are, the truth of the way it is. So our refuge in the Dhamma is refuge in the truth, or the truth of the way it is. Then in, in terms of the rebirth, then the, the, we're not operating anymore just in the sangsaric way of going around in circles, but in terms of, of, of skillful actions not based on ignorance, but on compassion, on metta, on karuna, on mudita, on upeka, or equanimity. The Brahma Viharas, the four Brahma Viharas began to, to uh, manifest in our lives as we recognize that our relationship to each other and to the planet that we live on is one of loving kindness rather than selfish interest based on compassion for the suffering of others rather than uh, just uh, ignoring and, and exploiting and abusing, contributing to the suffering of others uh, for our own benefit. So compassion the, uh, is the result of this awakening. Joy or mudita, uh, sympathetic joy. We, we find delight and, and happiness in the beauty and the goodness that we see around us in other people. That comes from, the, from, that's, comes from that pureness of being, the true nature of things. And we relate to the beautiful, the good, the virtuous, uh, the blessings that we experience in our lives are, as joy and then equanimity uh, upeka as, as a way of relating to all the conditioned phenomena of not, not, see, not going uh, not trying to seek joy or seek uh, uh, any special state of being but recognizing the peacefulness of equanimity, of a serene heart, blessing of a serene mind. So these four Brahma-viharas are quite natural responses from the purity of the, of the mind, 
And that, then we're talking about, say, the natural state of being that is no longer uh, divided into personal uh, perceptions. So that's one reason why we have this uh, Buddha Dhamma Sangha as a refuge rather than in a person or a personality. And then in Theravada Buddhism especially, there's the, the, we don't take refuge in, in the teachers or person gurus or, or uh, monks. I mean, some people do, but that's not the real refuge of a Buddhist, is it? It's Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Because we're, we're getting beyond just the personality of any, every, any individual to that purity of, of being, of knowing, which is Buddha knowing the truth which is a, which uh, one can say is universal rather than personal so contemplating like this uh, you you're awakening you're reflecting you're beginning you, the, the awakened mind is isn't isn't something that's difficult it's a matter of, of trusting in it in your ability to to pay attention, to listen, to be in a state of kind of poised awareness where your, your mind isn't fixed on anything, isn't holding but, uh, and grasping, but kind of resting in a state of, of non-conceptual poise. It's bright, it's attentive, aware. And that state is is something that we, we tend to not develop as uh, human beings. I mean, we'll say modern life is very much a commitment to absorbing into things, becoming, rebirth, doing things, getting things done, getting caught up into the momentum of, uh, of absorbing into objects, into things, into ideas, looking for the next thing, what the the, the, the usual question, what's next? And they call it in Latin, they use the word quid nunc. They say, he's a quid nunc. A quid nunc is one who says, what's next? So you, you're going on to the next thing. You go like a, a, a you know, living in Disneyland. Where you, say, after the, you go here, then you say, what's next? And so you're, you're on to the next thing. And then you keep going around and you get... <laughs> get worn out and then what's next is I just want to uh, go to bed it's exhausting and so you don't you know, what next then goes into crashing out go to sleep now this uh, but then as soon as you wake up, what's next begins again. What do I do next? And say the attitude then of meditation is, is rather than what's next, is, is observing that very, that very uh, feeling or mood or, or momentum of the mind. Get that state of pure uh, attention to the way it is. And, and contemplating the suffering, the attachment to desire, uh, and through that, the insights into letting go, relinquishing 
not no longer grasping, liberating yourself from that habit, to realize the cessation of things in your mind. So the third noble truth is about the cessation of the condition in which you observe that the things that arise, all your desires, and as you understand them and let them be what they are, they cease. And that awareness of the cessation takes one to uh, non-suffering, the realization of non-suffering, which is the Eightfold Path, the Fourth Noble Truth, the way to live as a human individual on this planet without creating suffering in your in your mind. You still get old and suffer, uh, get uh, diseases and and the problems of old age and death, but you're not creating suffering because instead of avicca or ignorance, there's now or right understanding, samaditi. The, uh, of, of the Eightfold Path, samaditi, right, right kind of knowing, right understanding of things. So samaditi then takes us to right thinking. When we understand things the right way, then we, then we, we start thinking in the right way. We're not just thinking habitually, uh, you know, like uh, we can condi- we can think in the wrong way because out of the force of habit. But then we, but because we are thinking beings, because that's part of our nature is to think, we start thinking in the right way rather than in the wrong way. Right thinking, then right action, right uh, livelihood, right speech. In fact, it comes from from right understanding, right thinking, to the right speech, right action, right livelihood, to the right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. So these all, like this is an integrated path. It's not like a a path, a step by step, but it, it's like, it's just emphasizing these eight parts of this one way in the present. And more and more we we began to trust and to uh, really relax into this way. One feels now, like after many years as a monk, a total trust in the way, in the, in the way of the Buddha. It's not like where before at the beginning I wasn't quite sure. When I first started, uh, became a monk, I, I wasn't sure whether all this was going to work or not. Or whether Buddhism really, maybe it's just another high-minded, highfalutin philosophy. I didn't know. People, I read philosophy in university, and I read all kinds of inspiring philosophies, but none of them seemed to work. Uh, Seemed to to lead on to anything. But then, in in uh, because of the emphasis the Buddha made on on meditation. Then this this is this is very much uh, say the the uh, the movement of modern uh, say of of many people in the in the Western world and in Asian countries. You find now in Sri Lanka also a lot more lay people are practicing meditation. In Thailand, for example, 
uh, Ajahn Chah used to, f when, when we came to England 20 years ago, he's, he was pretty fed up with Thailand. He, he said, Thais just, you know, they're not interested in the practice. And he had great hopes that in the West people would show an interest in the actual practice of meditation. But now you couldn't, you couldn't say that about Thailand. There's a lot of interest in the practice amongst, not just monks, but also among uh, lay people. And, and that's a good sign. It's not just happening here in the West, but also in, in Buddhist countries, uh, Buddhist teaching is, is oftentimes being rediscovered. It's not, no longer just cultural and, and institutional, but it's uh, people beginning to awaken uh, to their Buddhist heritage rather than just take it for granted. And this is a good thing because Buddhism, Buddha Dhamma doesn't, it's not, a, it's not a teaching which divides. You're talking about suffering and the end of suffering. You're not talking about uh, the nature of, of God or, or, or things that where people get into, into uh, very, uh, uh, have very strong views about things where you're, you're starting from very, from very high up and where it's a matter of opinion and preference. Where suffering is a common bond, isn't it? It's, it's a common experience. And the approach the Buddha had isn't to, isn't, isn't toward a blame or wallowing, but towards understanding and, and reflecting and awakening to this to realize the way of non-suffering. Though the way of non-suffering is a human being. When you read the scripture, the suttas, uh, after the Buddha's enlightenment, he still had all kinds of terrible things happen to him. I mean, he didn't get enlightened and then live in a cloud of bliss the rest of his life. Uh, I mean, he had to go out and face all kinds of uh, difficult things. So, you know, drunken elephants and, and jealous cousin and, and recalcitrant obnoxious monks and difficult bhikkhunis and, and uh, endless complaints and threats and blame by the lay community uh, and all the problems of anyone else, you know, uh, were... Uh, went toward the, the Lord Buddha. But he didn't create suffering around these problems. That was the difference. He didn't take it personally. He didn't, he didn't create anger or greed or diluted mental states around the experiences he was having. So he still, physical body got old. And uh, and he got and he and he got sick and he and the body died. So, I mean that's that's we all that happens to to all of us. So we can relate to that. And he wasn't like a made out of ether, and uh, and so what happened to him? We can't you know if somebody's made out of ether, then we the kind of suffering they have experienced wouldn't mean much to us. Having a physical body like this, having a mind like this, being a a man or a woman, being human being, uh, having your life threatened, being blamed for things you haven't done, uh, people jealous of you, people abusing you, uh, 
having to live with difficult situations and insecurity are common human experiences that the Buddha, through his enlightenment, didn't avoid, but his response to them was one of loving kindness, uh, compassion, wisdom, rather than blame, anger, aversion, resentment. So that's the difference between a Buddha and and an unawakened human being. Because the unawakened human being tends to create suffering around the experiences of life. You think life was fair to the Buddha after he was enlightened? It wasn't necessarily fair. <laughs> and, uh, it was, a lot of unfair things happened to him. In the scriptures, I mean, this is, this is the, not to justify unfairness, but, but life is like this in a, in a world, in a realm that we live in. It's, it is a painful realm. It is irritating, frustrating. This, but this is all bearable and endurable if we have this wisdom to understand it and not to create suffering uh, onto our own experience. Uh, of life as we uh, as we as time flows by now it's the the autumn and feel in the air this kind of autumnal feeling uh, kind of atmosphere and the leaves are chain turning and uh, the temperature is getting more cold there's a kind of sadness and we had a such a long spring in summer. Remember the, the, the spring here in England is so, all this kind of unfolding of, of springtime is so beautiful where all these different flowers appear and, and, and it takes several months to go through the process of spring into summer and then, and then the summertime. And, now, and then, then now this, this is the the autumn and it's the, the kind of cessation isn't it from the summer solstice uh, the, uh, the, the uh, autumn equinox in this now this fading out of what came alive vibrantly proclaiming itself in the springtime is now old and uh, decaying and dying and and then the leaves fall, and then winter time, the barrenness, the bleakness of the winter. So this is this is this is just nature, isn't it? This is the way it is in terms of the natural process. How we relate to this? You know, how do we just on the level of of the seasonal changes? You know, so I could see uh, coming when I came to England 20 years ago. I would I've been living in uh, hot climates for many years, tropical climates, where and I and I like heat and I like sunshine. So, so I always gravitate toward the warm climates. After I I grew up in in, a, in uh, the northwest of the United States, which is very similar to southern England. But um, 
when I was old enough to get away from there, I moved to California. I wanted to just move toward the sun. I had this obsession about living in the sun, sunshine, warmth. Then went to live in Malaysia and then Thailand. And then coming to, to England and it felt so cold and then the gray clouds and that. How do I respond to that? Well, at first, the react, uh, reactions were complaining. Everybody complains about the weather here anyway. Even when it's great, they still complain. And so it's a, a, a national habit to complain about the weather. But, the, um, but I saw this. I saw this, this was a reaction that was not skillful for me to, to hold on to. So I began to open my mind, try to open myself to the, to the weather, to the season, rather than just compare them to other, you know, when it's springtime uh, or summertime or if it's cold, wanting the heat, or if it's wintertime, wanting to, to live in, go back to Thailand or whatever. Instead of doing that, I started investigating the experience of the changing of the seasons. This is kind of like a meditation. So, so I began to discover all kinds of things that I wouldn't have observed or appreciated if I just caught in my ignorant reaction to the cold or the damp or the, or the seasonal changes. So it's like uh, this, this openness, this poised attention to life helps us too, uh, even in the even in situations that we might not like or not might not appreciate, once we open to it, oftentimes we can we see subtleties or awaken to aspects that we've totally ignored and not appreciated before. So this this way of, of opening the heart and and trusting in the Dhamma allows us to not create suffering around the problems difficulties, irritations, aggravations of this realm and this body that we uh, only temporarily uh, abide in. So, offer this as a reflection for you uh, to recognize that this uh, day of um, the, that the, the um, memories we have, we, uh, how we use our ability to remember determine how we get reborn. And we can actually get out of the cycle of rebirth through understanding it. So this is the dispensation of the Lord Buddha. The, uh, when we think of our parents now, say if they're, if, say if, they're, if, they're, if they've died, passed on. I think of my parents and then I feel uh, generally now, my parents, when once they're dead, they, all the things they've done wrong, suddenly I've forgotten. I just think about my wonderful parents. <laughs> so, so, uh, it's, it's like so some, something happens, when they, at least to me anyway. Uh, and, and also one is very grateful for having had kind, loving, and uh, caring parents. 
in a world where you see so many children are brought up in situations without those kind of advantages. Where the street children, children are just thrown out and without any anyone to care about them. It seems increasingly quite uh, horrifically more common or you hear about it. Then, uh, but in terms of honoring that memory, when, when somebody dies, we don't know what happens when they die. You know, we don't, it's the unknown. We haven't died yet, so we can't know what death is, physical death. But we do have a memory. They, I still remember my mother and father. So that memory then I honor. It's like with loving kindness. I, I honor that memory. Try to use that memory as a, as a kind of uh, reminder to, do, to live in a good way, to do something kind, something generous for somebody else. It's a way of honoring one's parents. Or if your parents still alive, the same thing applies. Way of honoring and 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 expressing gratitude, because being a parent is not easy. It's not. A, it's a. It's a so much that that one has to give up. As, as you, well, those of you who are parents, know you have to give up so much of your own privacy and personal desires to look after a family. And so that is uh, also something when I think of of how much my parents had to, uh, they they didn't have all the opportunities for self-fulfillment and realization that I've had. They had to work and, and do things according to, you know, very limited options in order to provide a good home, good food, clothing, and all the rest for my sister and myself. So when I think of that, I feel the gratitude and a lot of respect for for their uh, for their kindness and generosity. Thinking like this uh, uh, gives us this this experience of katanyu gatawati, which is gratitude. So that's enough for this afternoon and uh, the Katina is uh, next month I think it's on the 9th or something like that in November so you're all invited to that uh, this Vasa has uh, been a very peaceful one uh, the monastic community here at Amravati seems to uh, kind of extraordinary kind of har- harmony uh, this Vasa, uh, <laughs> it's quite been an ex- extremely pleasant Vasa period this year at Amravati. And maybe it's due to this temple that sets a whole different tone to the life here. Um, this temple also is built on donations, so it's, it's something when I, when I reflect on it, you know, this feeling of Kadanyu. Katamwe tea, where the, where the uh, uh, lay people have been so generous in in uh, helping to build this this temple. So it's something you know that not built for any person, but for all of us uh, to encourage us and to provide opportunities like this 
where we can uh, come together and uh, pay our respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha and and uh, practice meditation, learn how to uh, open the heart, awaken the mind, and understand the Dhamma. So I offer this as reflection for this afternoon. ติตังปฏิทังดุมหังคิปเมวะสัมมิชาตุสัพเพบุเรนโตสังกะภาจันโทปนรโสยาธามณิจุดีรโสยาธาสัพพิติโยวิวาชันทุสัพพะโรโคว